this is one of those times we'll look back on and say, this is a real opportunity to do something better, faster, and cheaper. We've always said you cannot pull all three levers, but I believe we are pulling all three levers. That's Michael Engel, Intelligent Automation Leader at PwC Labs. This is Heather Horn, and thank you for joining me for Episode 5 in our 10-part What's Next in Tech podcast series. We're officially halfway through the series. I hope you've been keeping up. We have another great episode for you today. It's all about RPA, or robotic process automation, a somewhat lofty and intimidating term to some. But the truth is, when you think of RPA, think of automated workflows, reduced human error, increased output. Sounds nice, right? Michael, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about robotic process automation. There's a lot of words there and, you know, we hear it in shorthand as RPA and it seems like when I talk to my old clients, sort of something everyone is doing, but why is this an important discussion right now and and why should companies be considering this today? Well, Heather, thanks for having me and more importantly, thanks for asking me that question as a starting point. While the term RPA, robotic process automation, is new, It's not new technology. We've been using this for an awful long time. We were using it in the mid-90s. One of the projects that I'm most proud of, actually, is a project we did for a state and local government. Uh, And it was all about tying together systems that couldn't possibly talk to one another. For example, dispatchers were going from one system to the next, trying to find the right data, while a a police officer was on the street probably trying to apprehend somebody. So this is all about public safety, right? These are mission-critical problems that we were trying to solve. What's happened since, though? is first off, we stopped calling it non-invasive middleware. If you fast forward to today's platforms, they're really doing the same thing, kind of filling the gaps between enterprise systems that are either hard or, or just too costly to do. I mean, these gaps exist for a reason. So this is kind of where it fits in now. Um, but RPA at its core is really this, this the same technology we're using then. So back to your question about why executives should start to consider it. The easiest way to think about RPA or automation generally is really kind of the next generation of outsourcing. I mean, clearly, we've been focused on outsourcing highly transactional standardized processes for years. But this allows us to do the same thing at, at a task level and basically outsource those tasks to a digital workforce. Example, from a BPO perspective, we've been outsourcing invoice processing for a long time. In this case, maybe we're talking about just the reconciliation task within that process is what we'd be considering as an outsourced uh, activity. I definitely have to say I had no appreciation for the fact that this type of what we call RPA now, or you told me just automation, um, has been around for so long. And again, it wasn't something that I saw in my clients being done regularly by sort of, to your point, the reconciliation person themselves putting in some of these types of technologies. And so how have we gone from it being something where it was sort of more on an enterprise level to today where, you know, we do see it citizen-led. We obviously have it in PwC, but as well, you know, talking to my old clients, I hear them talking about them adopting it in their, in their day-to-day work. So what kind of spurred that change? Well, look, the, the most critical thing that happened was it became more accessible more approachable, right? We've taken some really powerful technology and packaged it up in a way that people can use it, right? People that are not necessarily developers. I would say, you know, from the perspective of the the, the kind of the super user of it, obviously has the aptitude for this type of development, but they don't have to be writing code 
right? They don't have to be, you know, an engineer to be able to use it. So I think that's one of the biggest drivers in, in terms of getting it out uh, to the masses. The other thing, Heather, quite frankly, is there's an expectation of people that are coming into the workforce now. This type of uh, capability, this type of automation is going to be at their fingertips. How do you see this being used successfully? And then I'm going to have a follow-on question of if you could almost give an example from idea to sort of execution, what that often may look like. Let me start with a little bit of a definition because I think it's going to be important. When you think about task automation versus process automation, because that's really where the split is. Um, in, In task automation, we're looking at subsets of processes. For example, pulling a bank statement from a bank's website would be a task that you've automated. Important, meaningful. But process automation is a broader set of activities. For example, in this case, conducting the bank statement reconciliation from end to end. Right. So there's a number of different steps in there that we're able to kind of string together. And that would be the domain of the, the, the business led automation. Okay. So then, Michael, if I was saying I see an opportunity in my business, we spend tons of time on our reconciliations. How would I start this automation process? Many clients do start with things like reconciliation, right? The process, this process is standard and time consuming, right? Going between system to system to be able to get things. So that's the reason that we're reconciling in the first place. So those type of tasks, those type of activities make a really good place to start. I think that the one thing though that I talk to our clients about most frequently is don't try to prove the technology. Technology is proven. It exists. We use it in mission critical applications in the past. Really what you're trying to do is find those first opportunities that are measurable in terms of their impact. And so then, for example, in this case, it would be this reconciliation is like a a place you could get a foothold and start. Right. And, and clearly, there are going to be measurements about around the time it takes. That's the easy one. But what about the actual quality of, of the work that you do? Right. How accurate is it? And so then your suggestion is that this could actually increase your level of accuracy. It's not just faster, but it's also more accurate. Yeah, I think, Heather, this is this is one of those times we'll look back on and say, this is a real opportunity to do something better, faster, and cheaper. We've always said you cannot pull all three levers, but I believe we are pulling all three levers. So then if I'm thinking about my workforce and I don't have these skills right now, how would I go about upskilling the workforce? Or, or what's one of the ways to think about that in order to allow them to do some of this sort of citizen-led type of automation? At this stage of the game, it's not a one or the other either or type of situation, it's really, we've got to think about automation as the domain of both the citizen and business-led automation. So it's a matter of getting everybody into the boat one way or another. And so there are a couple of things that we need to do from the perspective of getting this to work in a hybrid model. And first, it starts with having the right operating model defined in the first place. We've done a lot of trial and error. Our clients have done a lot of trial and error in this space, and we know what works, right? It's that combination. And it's also the the idea of getting all the constituents together. This is, you know, what we've, we kind of pitched it early on as this is an opportunity for business to drive their own their own automation, their own technology. At the end of the day, it is a combination, right, from a business-led perspective of the business and IT, where business has the ownership responsibility, um, but IT is still in the mix. When it comes to the, the citizens themselves, we have to start by thinking about how do we change the culture. It's not just put people through training. We have to help people think differently. We have to get people over their fears. We did make this one mistake, you know, when we moved from non-invasive middleware to robotic process automation. We didn't consider the word robot, 
and the, and the impact I can have on somebody's psyche, right? Robot implies that I'm going to be replaced. So we have to get people past that and, you know, kind of change the culture into the one that realizes that automation benefits you, benefits the organization, benefits our clients and so forth. Well, so yeah, so a couple of questions on that, because I think you're right on the robot implies replacement, but I also think it implies this is complicated and hard. And how am I, an accountant, going to start doing robotics. And, you know, again, if you think about your workforce, maybe intimidated by this, also with this concern that maybe they are going to be automated out and and not needed anymore. How do you think about that in terms of the change management that's needed to adopt some of this technology? Yeah, I think part of it from a citizen perspective, it's amazing that people do start with kind of that trepidation and concern about the robots are coming to take my job. And and unfortunately, most of that came from the media as opposed to, you know, clients that I've observed directly, because I think people do, staff do realize that when they start to play with this technology, that it is to their benefit. It is going to allow them to focus on, you know, things that they really want to do. You know, when they're creating financial reports, it's the understanding of the data, the analyzing of data. That's what people want to do. Pulling the different pieces, the different inputs for the report together. That's the domain of the robot. So uh, I think people are, are starting to understand that. Um, and, and that's a big deal. You're right. I mean, it, it, is, it can be complex, but it doesn't have to be. There's a level of complexity that comes along with really just thinking about how would I do things differently. If I were to just say, I'm going to take these tasks that I do, and I'm going to automate them in exactly the same way they are today, that's far less complex than thinking about, I'm going to take this entire process and re-engineer it based on automation as the driver, right? So the level of complexity is quite different. So then I guess, how do you think about those two different things? Do you start with the latter because that's where you're really trying to get to, or do you just automate what you're already doing and then maybe don't see as much incremental but you still see a lot of improvement, but maybe it's not rethinking everything. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So when you think about intake, essentially, of, of automation opportunities generally, there's two ways that you get it, proactively and reactively. And both can be very important. We have some capability here at the firm that we, we use with our clients where we can proactively go out and observe what the, what people are doing using bots, if you will, to do that work and then come back and kind of re-engineer the processes. From a reactive perspective, we're really getting an understanding of where the individual's pains are. Right. So and also a good place to start. I'll give you a little short anecdote of, of something that's happening here over and over again at the firm is that an individual staff member automates something that's painful for that person. Right. Some set of steps in, in, in a financial process and then maybe shares that with another set of people in, in their group. And that's good. and It's useful. Um, it can save you know hours, several hours in a week or, or however it might turn out and allow them to focus on things that are more important. What becomes more interesting is when we take it through governance and curation process, and we identify that as something, a pain point that affects a lot more people. And we can take that through the business-led development process and impact hundreds, if not in our case, thousands of people and turn it into from hours for an individual on a a weekly basis to tens of thousands of hours for the firm broadly. So then if I'm an organization, I'm the controller trying to think about scale across my organization, how do you think about maybe a little foothold that you've got in one place in terms of scaling that? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of goes back to how do we identify, doesn't it? Right, the opportunities that'd be right. Um, I, generally speaking, the best place to go and look is where the most people are focused <laughs> their time, right? Where systems are stable, where there's a repeatable process that we've identified, in, in, in that sort of thing. And and that is that still holds. We're looking at uh, kind of that low hanging fruit. But as things progress and you get deeper into your program, we have to identify other ways. And it's going to go back to what are individuals doing that they shouldn't be doing. How do I identify that? People will put their hand up. But then when we we run the risk of kind of fixing a pain point that may not have to exist in the first place, we've seen over and over again where we've automated things or where our clients have automated things that really didn't need to be automated. What needed to happen was a change of configuration in their enterprise system, and all that pain would have gone away. So there is a point of where we need to understand, is it something that should be automated in the first place, right? And that's really a lot of what we're trying to to teach people as part of that cultural change is, right, don't just think about the pain that you feel right there at that particular task, that particular particular step. Think about what happens before that and what's going to happen after that and how can you influence that as well as part of the automation journey. You know, the other question I always like to ask my guests is, you know, you're here talking about a lot of change. Obviously, all of us have experienced a massive amount of change over the past six months. And in that context, then how do you, what do you say to someone to say, do I really want to put this additional change on my workforce? This is the time. And we asked this questions of executives that we surveyed before the pandemic, for example, 84% of them said that they believed that they needed to scale their programs. Right? They needed to do it quickly. And less than 10% of them actually were. Now, I believe that in pandemic, where we are now, it's even more valuable, more important. And I think that what we can see, you know, just from the, from the software vendor's perspective, is our clients are investing more in this technology. Part of it is the adoption or the willingness to adopt a lot of different things. I, I, I don't know if it's the same for you, Heather, but I know that uh, my day has changed dramatically. And not just because I'm sitting here in my home office, but because a five-minute conversation in a hallway with a client or with a colleague has turned into a 30-minute conversation with five people on the phone. It's still important. We need to do it. But that leaves precious little time to do kind of the activities that, that actually I get paid to do. And then what if I'm listening and I'm thinking, yes, I'm all in. I, I, this is an important skill for me, but I don't see my company moving as quickly as I think it should be. Then how could I as an individual impact this or, or find a process and, and start to do this myself? Is, is that something I can do myself or I really need a big program? You don't need a big program. And I think the good news is, uh, as always, the software vendors are kind of leading the way here, right? They they allow us to kind of identify the pain or the opportunities, and then they go off and build to it. So I think they're leading the way here from a citizen perspective because they are encouraging the world to get upskilled on their technologies. Um, all the leading RPA vendors, for example, offer free licenses for people to use, download and use. And I've heard more than one time, particularly when I'm going into a client that's new to this, that several of the people in the room have done that automated certain things about their you know their home activities their diary whatever it is that they're that they're working with uh, you know however they're interacting with their computer at home and they're doing it so I think that's that's one of the key ways is that uh, we can upskill through the through the vendors themselves now so it's going to be important for individual people not to be intimidated but almost just to jump in and, and start trying this similar to many actually of the other changes we've all had to deal with it's just Get in there and see what you can do. So then when you've seen companies that are maybe, let's say, implementing this on a broader scale, 
what are some of the challenges that they're coming across in making these changes? We'll hit that from both sides as well. I think from an enterprise perspective or a business-led perspective, the biggest challenge is kind of meeting expectations. We've, we set a high bar when we started talking about RPA seven, eight, nine years ago, whatever it was, having just this tremendous impact on your efficiency generally. And if you, if you look at RPA alone from an enterprise perspective, that's not going to get us there. There are two things that we've realized that are more important in terms of really having an impact on whatever metric you choose. One is that there's a convergence of technologies that is required to accomplish this. Two is that we have to start realizing that humans are going to be in the loop for the time being. Right? We're not going to be able to automate all, all these processes from a straight-through perspective. So first, that means that we have to kind of broaden the scope of the technology that we're considering. And in most cases, from an enterprise perspective, the systems like, like BPM, like elements of AI, like data extraction, these things exist, but we have to consider a different framework in order to industrialize these programs from a technology perspective. From the perspective of the people part of it, we, we have more and more clients, uh, in fact, one that I just spoke with today, that have really decided from the top down that they want to follow our lead that they want to upskill the workforce, that they want it to be meaningful, and how do we do it? And it, it really starts with that kind of combination of you know, planning, right? How do, how do we plan for this workforce of the future, and how do we do that quickly? Take advantage of learnings of other clients and other companies. How do we actually conduct that learning? And then how do we support the, that workforce from a technology perspective? And then you touched on this briefly, but I want to delve in a little deeper, is this is not just around cost savings, right? Like what are some of the other benefits companies see as they embrace using this type of technology? Yeah, there, there are a number. And, and I think it changes. What we saw early on was particularly um, uh, in the financial services industry, it was really this whole thought of how do I reduce headcount through the use of this technology? And that was a metric. And, you know, when you talk about large portions of the uh, automation programs that failed, that's why you're really measuring the wrong thing. What we should be measuring, like we are here at the firm, is you know how much capacity have I created in my workforce? How have I enabled them in different ways than I could have with any other technology? And then from an outcomes perspective, there are things like quality, throughput, things that are typically associated with much larger enterprise application development efforts. As you step back and maybe think about some more recent cases, are there any sort of examples outside of PwC that you've seen where companies done this particularly well, or they've done something unique that really has had an impact on their workforce or maybe how they're working? Yeah, that's an important point, Heather. If we're just impacting the back office, that's good, but that means it's just about efficiency, doesn't it? So I'll give you a good example, actually, because I, I didn't see this one coming. We were working with a tax department you know, for, a, for a software company, and they had a real problem with dealing with tax certificates for tax-exempt organizations. And it was a big deal for them. So obviously, we could automate that. We could use data extraction to be able to pull the data from all these different certificates and understand that. That was the easy part. What we didn't realize is that ties into client satisfaction in their case, right? It's moving all the way up to the front office where, where the clients are actually buying stuff. And all of a sudden, you start to see that their satisfaction increases the amount that they're willing to spend. So unintentional consequence, but yeah, that's it's a, an interesting one. Let me ask you sort of a related question, which is, do you have any good examples of a case where maybe there was a workforce that was more resistant to trying to bring in this type of change or 
from your experience these days are do most organizations know this is something we just need to do and they're they kind of just move on with it Heather, I, we do see, we still see certain parts of the workforce that are resistant to this. People that feel like their jobs are kind of more uh, in jeopardy, perhaps, by the, the coming of the robots than others. We've been talking about, you know, citizen development, and that's not where the problem is. That's not where the resistance is, right? There's a pull in that environment, right? Because you know that I can do certain things that I don't want to do, right? Certain tasks that I don't want to do, and that's good. However, when you take this back to kind of a shared services organization, where we're doing some of the transactional types of things that may be redundant, repetitive type of work, there's always, always still some resistance there. However, the same thing applies, that whole sense of changing the culture, changing the way people think, and realizing that by and large, it's not going to be job changing. It's going to be job enhancing. It's going to give you an opportunity to do more of the interesting parts of of what you do. Uh, I'll give you an example just from ourselves some of your friends in in the assurance business, right? These are brilliant professionals that do audit work. What they didn't come on to do was wrangle data, thinking that I'm going to go push a button that's going to give me data from a bunch of different sources, and I'm going to spend all my day putting together and looking at these pages, page over page, until I come to something that actually I have to think about, you know, that part, that anomaly, that audit concern. Now, great way that we've helped in that space is by saying, no, that's all you're going to do. You're going to look at the anomalies because we've used the automation, the robots to be able to take out all the mundane component of it, all the review of documents or whatever it is you're doing that don't require your attention. Yeah, that's another great example. And then in just if I'm dealing with a workforce and I see this kind of resistance, what are some of the tricks or success tips that you've had to help people sort of overcome this idea that, you know, the robot's going to take my job or that I don't, you know, that I'm kind of dragging my feet and I don't want to participate in this? Well, there's a couple of things. It's, it's you know, this same old thing that we always do from a cultural change perspective is to help people understand what's in it for them and be very specific about it. Because if we're vague, that's where we're going to lose the interest in, in the commitment of, of the team, right? So it's about the value, about how it's going to help you upskill. Just being involved in these programs is going to give you an opportunity to do something you hadn't done before, whether it has to do with automation or some, something else that you do with the firm that you use that creative capacity for. That makes sense. So then any other recent maybe conversations you've had with companies in terms of sort of what's top of mind with controllers and finance departments as they're thinking about adopting RPA and, and this type of technology? It seems to be two things that are top of mind that I'm having discussions with our clients about every day. One of them is scaling. We talked a bit about that. How do I get this program to scale and be really beneficial to the firm generally and to my staff? And then the second one is all about upskilling. It's, you know, how do I how do I change my workforce? I recognize and it's good that you have to think about how do I change my workforce of today to be the workforce of tomorrow? But secondly is how do I attract people? How am I going to attract people that are new to the workforce that are going to actually help me by, be more diverse and, and drive the next innovation for me? Yeah. And how do you do that? <laughs> One of the key things is is really making sure that they have access to these types of technologies and that they're encouraged. We make time for them to do this work. We recognize that real innovation comes from the individuals who are doing the work. 
So it comes back to the same thing, actually, that you talked about before, which is really not just viewing this as automating what you're doing now and doing everything faster, but there's true benefit that's going to come out of this, both for how I operate my organization, as well as for the individuals in my organization. And then by embracing it, that's going to make people want to join my organization. So it, those pieces all kind of fit together. That's right. So then, Michael, as you look ahead and maybe a year from now, a few years from now, what makes you excited about the future of what companies are going to be able to do in this area? Anything emerging or what are your thoughts? We're going to find that RPA is going to become ubiquitous with across a lot of different platforms. There are a number of the enterprise software companies that have been snapping up RPA companies and just embedding them in their technology. So recognition that you know this is a converged technology play at this point, that's exciting to me. <laughs> the other thing we like to talk about, and uh, maybe a little bit further on down the line, but I think is going to be important, is the sense of bots that build bots or bots that build bots and maintain bots. You know, we, we've kind of got the bookends at this point, Heather. You know, we, we've got a really good capability uh, as an industry for identifying opportunities automatically, for, you know, simulating kind of future state automatically. And then on the other end of it, you know, being able to main, maintain and self-heal automations. Just missing that middle part. And you can imagine that when we get there, it'll just all be about tweaking and continued innovation in that space. Definitely an exciting area for change and really appreciate your insight. Thank you, Heather. Appreciate being here. Thank you to Michael and thank you for tuning in. Join me back here every Tuesday and Thursday for new podcast episodes so that you never miss an episode of any of our audio content. Subscribe to the PwC Accounting Podcast Series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.